so good. Let's thank him for his goodness. Father, we praise you. We thank you for the simple truth that you are good. You make all things work together for the good of those who love you. That what the enemy means for evil, you use for the good of your people. So Father, this morning, could we just stand in your goodness and your faithfulness? God, would you stir within us once again just the joy of knowing your goodness? And help us, Father, as we open your word today once again to taste and see that you are good. Father, we thank you for your mercy, which is new with every single morning. And Lord, we are grateful for this because we need it every single day. We come to you this morning as people who are in need, who desperately need you. So Father, help us to see your goodness today. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. We're here for you and we wait for you. We just sing that chorus together one more time that he's good. Let's lift our voices here. praise him one more time this morning, church. Amen. Amen. Beautiful sound. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat uh, this morning. And uh, as you find your seats, I'm going to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles. Ezra chapters 5 and 6 are where we're going to be this morning. If you're here with us today for the very first time, the last few weeks we have been walking through uh, the Old Testament book of Ezra. We'll also be walking later in uh, several weeks down the road through the book of Nehemiah as well in a message series called Restore and Rebuild. So Ezra chapter 5 and Ezra chapter 6 is what we're going to cover together this morning. Year before last at Christmas, we got our boys a trampoline. And at the time uh, of uh, giving them this gift, Christmas at the end of 2019, they were 7, 4, and 2. So Christmas morning, when they discovered that it was in the backyard, it did not take long. Uh, All three of them, before the break of dawn, had had taken off outside. And uh, our two oldest in particular, they had spent plenty of time on trampolines. This wasn't new to them. So uh, Gideon, who's seven, Nolan at the time was four. They're uh, wasting no time. They're jumping, they're flipping, they're wrestling. Um, In our family, again, we have three boys. Um, We do, as parents, we we do sanction some levels of violence with these three boys. We believe boys should be boys. And so, you know, no closed fist, no biting, no pulling hair, no shots below the belt, but pretty much everything else is fair game. And so we're letting them turn loose. They're having a great time. Uh, But they also didn't waste any time using it as an opportunity to torment their baby brother. Uh, Lincoln was two at the time. His footing wasn't quite sure. He had not quite figured out uh, how to navigate this beast quite yet. And so he was out there for maybe 10, 15 minutes. And I hear two boys who are laughing and giggling and joking as they jump and flip and wrestle. And I hear one little boy who is screaming at the top of his lungs uh, as he bounces around like a rag doll. So after about 15 minutes in the octagon, uh, he comes to the back door and he says, Daddy, my brothers are being mean. And I was like, I'm, I'm sorry, buddy. That's what, that's what brothers do. And, and, uh, and, and says, I want to come inside. And so he comes comes inside, but then um, only about 45 minutes later, he's staring out the back door. He says, Daddy, I want to go jump. I said, that's fine, buddy. Go jump. He goes, I need you to watch me. 
He used to come watch me. I was like, oh, buddy, you're, you're going to be fine. It's okay. I'm you know, sitting there at the kitchen table. I was like, I can see through the window. He said, no, I need you to come watch me. So I said, okay. So I go outside, and uh, he jumps on the trampoline. I asked the boys just to be still, let him jump a little bit. Uh, but then it got a little bit busier, got a little bit more active. They fell down a few times. He saw it wasn't going to hurt him. And before long, he's having a really good time there, uh, wrestling around with his brothers, praying with his brothers. But as soon as I stepped away, he starts screaming again at the top of his lungs. I said, buddy, what's the matter? He goes, I need you to watch me. And, and I, I don't know what it was about my presence there. I guess he, he knew that, you know, dad was present, that if needed, I could rise up against his enemies. You know, I could step in and, and make sure that he wasn't being dominated too, too terribly. And as long as I was standing there, he could jump with confidence. As long as I was standing there, he was willing to, to fully engage. But the moment he knew that I stepped away, uh, suddenly he was worried. Over the last few weeks, we have tracked the movements of God's people out of 70 years of exile. For 70 years, they had been exiled in a foreign land, but the Lord stirs up the heart of the Persian king Cyrus. He issues this decree that exiled and conquered peoples could return to their homelands, that they could rebuild their places of worship and rebuild their communities. And so they waste no time. They immediately rebuild the altar and reinstitute the sacrificial system for worship. They lay the foundation of the temple. For some, that was a great act of rejoicing because they had never seen it before. For others, it was a time of mourning because they had seen the temple in its former glory and they saw that it wasn't going to be quite what it was. And then last week, we saw that as soon as they began their work of constructing the temple, they began to face opposition from their neighbors. The Lord had given them the divine mandate to go back and return and to rebuild their home. And they even had the protection of the Persian king who had issued the decree, making it possible for them to return. But the moment they began to face opposition, the people of God sat back and did not uh, do anything to continue pursuing what the Lord called them to do. And for a period of 16 years, construction on the temple came to a halt. For 16 years, the people sat in fear, paralyzed by the efforts of their neighbors who tried to make it as difficult as possible for them to fulfill what the Lord had given them to do. But as we're going to see in Ezra chapter 5 today, God's word tells us that the eyes of their God were on them. The eyes of their God were on them, and this gave them the confidence that they needed to rise up once again and continue the work that God had given them to do. They had lost sight of the Lord, but the Lord, church, had not lost sight of them. And I believe this is an important passage of Scripture for you and I today because you and I can expect, as followers of Jesus Christ in the 21st century, we are going to face the opposition of the enemy. We're going to face the opposition of the enemy. And sometimes that opposition can cause us to sit back in comfort to just focus on ourselves. I'm going to focus on my family, and we're just going to focus on our church. And all the while, the mission that the Lord has given us to fulfill remains incomplete, and in many ways, his church lies in ruins. And church, I believe that we need, once again, a fresh vision of God. The God that we sang to, who's the Lord of hosts that we sang earlier. Anybody else, when we sing that song, man, you feel like we're the nation of Israel, and we're about to take the promised land or something? I mean, it's just so intense, that truth that the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies of angels is the one who goes with us in everything he gives us to do. And we need to capture a fresh vision of that God. We need to capture a vision of God that doesn't just allow us to clearly see him. We need a vision of God that gives us the confidence of knowing that he sees us. And so today, through the example of his people in Ezra chapters 5 and 6, we're going to see a picture of the God who sees his people. 
and what it means for us that the eyes of God are on us and how that inspires our confidence to fulfill the mission he's given us to do. So if you're following along in your notes this morning, what we're going to see in Ezra chapters 5 and 6 is that the Lord will prosper the efforts of those who carry out his work under the safety and care of his watchful eyes. Let's go right to the word of God here in Ezra chapter 5. Okay, we're going to cover two chapters today. We're not going to read both chapters in their entirety. I'm uh, going to summarize some different sections. Just encourage you to read the whole chapters on your own, but we're going to work through the narrative here in chapters 5 and 6. Ezra chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, it says, Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So who was over them? God was. The name of the God of Israel who was over them, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, Jeshua, the son of Josadak, rose again to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. At the same time, Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shathar Bozani and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them this, what are the names of the men who are building this building? But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. So when the eye of God is on his people, when the eye of God is on us first this morning, we see that this means that he permits us to work. They were over, there, excuse me, it was the God of Israel who was over them. They were under the God of Israel. It was his eye that was on them. It was his divine mandate that had given them instruction to return to the home. It was the Lord who stirred up the heart of Cyrus to send them back home in order to make this possible. So at the word of the prophets, Zerubbabel and, uh, and uh, uh, Jeshua, who's the son of Josadak, they lead the charge to resume this work. And then the governor of the region, he comes to question them. So once again, we see the people of God facing this opposition. We see them facing uh, intimidating tactics from their neighbors who are trying to prevent them from doing this work. But verse 5 says that the eye of their God was on them. So this time the threats weren't going to stop. For 16 years, the people had cowered in fear at the threats and the intimidation of the people of this region, but this time it wasn't going to work. And, and this is one of those passages of scripture where you really start to see uh, the puzzle pieces of your Bible start to come together because verse one tells us that uh, this was during the time of the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. We looked at this briefly a couple of weeks ago. So if you look at how your uh, Old Testament books are listed in the table of contents, for example, you don't see Haggai and Zechariah happen in chronological order right behind the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. But this helps us to see uh, that their ministries overlapped with what was happening in this book. So I want us to look very briefly here at Haggai chapter 1. Haggai chapter 1, we're going to read together here verses 3 through 7, because this is what Haggai prophesied. These are the words that he spoke that stirred them up once again to return to this work. This is what the Lord spoke through Haggai in order to stir up the hearts of the people. It says Haggai chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. It says, Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time... For you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins. Is this the time for you to be building your homes by the house of God that you have been commissioned to build? Is this the time for you to sit in comfort as it lies in ruins? Verse 5, it says, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider 
your ways. I want you to say those words with me this morning. Consider your ways. Consider your ways. Consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts. What's he say again? Consider your ways. Consider your ways. The prophet, the Lord speaks through the prophet to these people. Now, many have of us, I I fear, we've become like the Jewish people here in Ezra chapter 5. We are waiting on the permission of man to carry out the mission of God. We have the authority that has been given to us by Jesus Christ. It's at the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. Before Jesus gives us those instructions to go and make disciples of all nations, what does he say? He says, all authority, all of it, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and then it's in that authority that he calls us to go. But many of us, I fear, we become just like the Jewish people here in Ezra chapter 5. We have the divine mandate of God, and even within our context, like they experienced in this moment, we even have the protection of the government. But because we face the slightest bit of opposition, we sit on our hands in comfort. They were building their homes. They were getting food for themselves, getting drink for themselves, getting clothing for themselves. Nothing was stopping them from building a comfortable lives for themselves. And here we see a picture that they ultimately were choosing their comforts over their commission. And we cannot be people who are guilty of waiting on the permission of man to fulfill and carry out the mission of God. Church, here's what we have to understand this morning is that we will always have opponents with our mission. There will always be those who oppose us. There will always be those who do everything they can to stall and to hinder our efforts. But we do not wait for the permission of man to carry out what we have been given by authority of Almighty God. He has given his church this mission and this commission. And we see the picture here of the people who lived in the confidence of knowing that his eyes were on them. The rest of chapter 5 here shows us that uh, this letter sent from Tatnai, the governor, to Darius. And um, verses 8 through 11, just skipping down here in chapter 5, this is part of the content of the letter. It says, Be it known to the king that we went to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God. It is being built with huge stones and timber is laid in the walls. The work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. And when we asked those elders and spoke to them thus, who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? We also asked their names for your information that we might write down the names of their leaders. And this was their reply to us. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. When the eye of God is on us, he is the one who permits us to work. He is the one who gives us permission. He is the authority who is ultimately over us. And everybody else, if they want to give us permission, great, but we don't need it because we report to a higher power. The people understood finally as the eye of the Lord was on them that their true authority, that their true responsibility was not being given to them by any king. It wasn't going to be given them to by any neighbor. It had to come from Almighty God. Beginning of chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, we start to see the decree here of Darius in response to this concern that's raised up. It says, Then Darius the king made a decree, and search was made in Babylonia, in the house of the archives where the documents were stored, and in Ekbatana, and this was a, a, a summer home really for Persian kings, the citadel that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found on which it, this was written, a record. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem, let the house be rebuilt. 
the place where sacrifices were offered, and let this, that the, its foundations be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits, and its breadth 60 cubits, with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber. Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury, and also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. And you shall put them in the house of God. So when the eye of God is on us, he permits us to work. And second, we see this morning, he provides our needs. He gives us everything that we need to complete the work that he's given us here to do. So we see in this passage here, the king ordered that the vessels be returned. All the vessels that had been confiscated by Nebuchadnezzar prior to the first exile, these were to be returned. And more than this, he says, we're going to finance this project. We're going to pay for this project. If you uh, really dig into what's going on here, most likely uh, this was actually some sort of memo that referred to the original decree that was made by Cyrus. And in that original decree, Cyrus said that the Babylonian peoples were supposed to support the work of the Jewish people uh, as they left from exile to make sure they have what they need. And so they give them everything that they need for the temple, for their building supplies uh, in order to make sacrifices and they send them off. But it appears here that Darius has actually upped the ante a little bit. He says, no, no, we are going to finance everything that's left in this project. He says, this is going to be paid from, from the royal uh, treasury here. And so that's why we get specific dimensions here. He says, it's going to be this wide. It's going to be this long. It's going to be this tall. There are going to be public funds used. So uh, they did put somewhat of a limit on how this was going to be carried out. But we even see the building materials that they use, the timbers and the stones. This is uh, an exact replica, replica, replication of uh, what they did when they built the original temple. So from the moment of return to resuming the work, the Lord provided everything they would need. He gave them everything that they needed for this work. This past week, I got a really amazing email um, from someone who's a member of our church. I can't tell you their name yet, and I'll, I'll, you'll understand why in here in just a moment. But over the last couple of years, the Lord had stirred up this person's heart uh, to take the gospel to those who have never heard the name of Jesus Christ. And so after a couple of years of, of training and, and going to some school and just a lot of praying and research, uh, the Lord has guided this person who's a member of our church uh, to take the gospel to a predominantly Muslim area. So they're going to be working um, in, in a country you'll probably never actually hear the name of um, with an organization that you've probably heard of, but I can't say publicly just for the, safe, uh, for the sake of, of, of their safety and the sake of their mission that they're on. But it's just been so amazing to see this develop over the last year that the Lord stirred up the heart of this person. They took a step of faith and it wasn't, hey, I'm going to raise money and then I'm going to go to school and, and then I'm just going to sort of wait for everything to be in line and then I'll go. The first thing they did was take the step of faith to go. It wasn't get everything I need and then I'll go. It was step in faith to follow Jesus and he will provide me with everything that I need. And so far this has proven true. They've gotten the training that they need. They partnered with the right organization, going through some training uh, this week and next week and have asked for our prayers and have asked for our support in this. And they're stepping out into this work, not because they can see it, it totally perfect in front of them, but because they're trusting, if I faithfully follow Jesus where he's called me to go, he's going to supply everything that I need as a church. I just want to challenge us in light of that example this morning. What is stopping you from doing what the Lord's called you to do? What is preventing us from stepping out in faith? Where are we trusting that the Lord will provide? This is what we see at the end of the Great Commission as Jesus gives us that instruction to go and make disciples of all nations. He leaves off the Great Commission with that great promise, I am with you for how long, church? Always. I am with you always to the end of the age. The Lord does not just call us to go, he goes with the called. And he provides our needs every step of the way when the eye of the Lord is on his people. 
When we are under his watchful care, we can trust that he's going to provide everything that we need to fulfill the work that he's called us to do. So verses 6 through 10, just to recap, Darius orders Tatnai to leave the people alone to allow them to rebuild. He orders the financing of the property so that this is going to be paid for with revenue from this particular region. And in many ways, this was a savvy political move because understand, this wasn't about Darius adopting their form of worship that this wasn't about Darius becoming a worshiper of the Lord. It was a savvy political move. He knew that uh, conquered peoples were much more likely to stay in submission and subjugation if they were given freedom of worship. So it's actually a very smart political move on his part. And he does everything that he can to support their work so that they will remain loyal uh, to his throne. But beyond the provision, he issues a stiff warning. I want you to read this with me here in verses 11 and 12. This is pretty intense. So on top of making provision for everything they're going to need for the supplies, this is the warning that he gives to those who have been opposing this work in Ezra 6, 11, and 12. He says, also I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house, and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a dunghill. Yikes. He says, may the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. So when the eye of the Lord is on us, he not only provides our needs, we can trust that he protects us from enemies. You know, you've got to think that the tune and the tone of the opponents changed real quickly here. I mean, they read this decree again, like this was the warning. If you disrupt this work, we will pull a beam out of your home, impale you on it, and then turn your house into a heaping pile of excrement. You did not learn that in Sunday school. I don't think our cross kids are getting a lesson this morning on how to impale people. I don't think. Don't quote me. I know three boys who would think that's cool, but we, we try to be careful with that. I mean, this is a stiff warning that, that he gives to his people. You have to think that the tune of the opponents changed real quick. I mean, they read this letter. It's like, okay, go back to the Jewish leaders. Like, hey, you know what, guys? How about we forget this whole misunderstanding happened? No problem from our end. Uh, This is totally good. Everything's been signed off. You're clear. Let's just forget this whole thing ever happened. Tell us what you need. We'll be glad to help. I mean, suddenly the people who've been opposing this work for over over 15, 16 years, they're they're suddenly like, hey, what, what can we do? How can we chip in and help? Because they've gotten the protection now from Darius the king. And and this is what's amazing is is Darius makes a really powerful statement here uh, in verse 12. He refers to the Lord as the God who has caused his name to dwell there. And again, it's not that Darius is a worshiper of the Lord. And so in in many ways, he's doing this unwittingly, probably not at all realizing the, the full weight and significance of the statement that he's making here. Because in identifying the Lord as the God who has called his name to dwell there, Darius is highlighting a key theological truth and major divine attribute of God. And the divine attribute that's being highlighted here by Darius is what we call the Lord's divine efficacy. His divine efficacy. And what his efficacy is, it's his power and ability to cause things to happen. And so by saying that he's the God who causes his name to be remembered there to dwell in this place, he's highlighting and he's magnifying the efficacy of God. God is omnipotent, which means what? He's all-powerful. So his efficacy is a testimony to his omnipotence. He is the all-powerful God who can cause things to come into being. That's how you and I got here today. This is the story of creation. God is the uncaused cause who has caused all things to come into being. 
He's the cause behind it all. And so he is the one who drives us forward. And what's amazing here is that the Lord just does not simply cause his people to be protected from their enemies. The Lord causes their enemies to be their protectors. He uses the Persian empire. He stirs up the heart of Cyrus, now the heart of Darius. And he provides, even through the government of pagans, the protection of his people. God will protect his people. Whenever his eye is on us, we will have his protection. I want you to turn with me here for just a moment uh, to Luke chapter 21 in the New Testament. We see this amazing uh, picture here that, that Jesus promises us as we face opposition. So Luke 21, we're going to read uh, verses uh, 16 through 19 together here in just a moment. And Jesus is going to say something. I'm going to read it, and it's going to sound at first like a bit of a contradiction, but then we're going to take a moment just to break this down because it really brings to life the type of protection that the Lord promises to give those who belong uh, to him. So Luke 21, we're going to read verses 16 through 19. This is what Jesus warns his disciples, and he tells them. He says, You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. I mean, his disciples knew what was coming. This is the warning that Jesus had given them. Verse 17, he says, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But then watch what he says in verse 18. He says, but not a hair of your head will perish. And by your endurance, you will gain your lives. Now, time out. I mean, in one breath, Jesus says, hey, some of you are going to be put to death. Because you faithfully follow me, because you're walking after me, because you're pursuing me, this is going to cost some of you your lives. You're going to be hated by all for my name's sake. So this is the promise for Jesus, not just for his disciples, but for all who will follow him. We will always have opposition. And yet, here's his promise. Not one hair of your head will perish. Some of them would lose their heads. Some of them would be martyred as followers of Jesus Christ, and yet he promises not a hair of your head will perish because we understand as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have not just temporary protection, but eternal protection. For followers of Jesus Christ, death is not the end of anything. Death is the beginning of everything. It's, it's where we finally truly start to live. It's through our endurance, Jesus says, we will gain our lives, even in losing our lives. And so this is the confidence of protection that we have in Jesus Christ, is that if our faith is in him and our trust is in him, no matter what happens to us in this life, it does nothing but dispatch us to eternal joy in the presence of Jesus. No matter what we experience, no matter what opposition we face, no matter what pain we endure. This is why the early church father Tertullian said this. I've always loved this. He said, the Christian, even when he is condemned, gives thanks. Because by our endurance, we will gain our lives. We can be confident as the eye of the Lord is on us. No matter what man does to us, even if we lose our lives, all it does is dispatch us to eternal pleasure in the presence of Jesus Christ. The enemy's greatest weapon, which is death, has become the instrument by which the Lord most powerfully draws us to himself. As followers of Jesus, we have nothing to fear because we're confident that we're under his protection. So verse 13, the governor uh, receives word from Darius and they obey his command. And then we see here chapter 6, uh, verses 14 and 15. It says, And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. They finished their building by the decree of, God of, of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. 
And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. So we see forth this morning that when the eye of God is on us, he prospers our efforts. They prospered the work of the Jewish people. They built the work and they prospered. And the reason they prospered, we're told, is because it was tethered to the work of the word. It was the accompanying preaching of the message that the Lord had given to the prophets that was driving and, and backing the work that they were doing in rebuilding the temple. And we're told that the temple was completed on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius. And this is important for us because if you look at the timeline of history, this was exactly 70 years after the destruction of the first temple. And how long did the Lord tell them they would be in exile before they returned to worship again? 70 years. So again, let's just backtrack a little bit here. They go into exile and they return. And it's the Lord who stirs up the heart of Cyrus. And it's the Lord who sends the people back. And it's the Lord who makes every provision. And it's the Lord who once again stirs them up to continue this work. But let's consider this this morning, that it was the Lord who delayed the project 16 years. And why is this? Why does the project delay 16 years? Well, church, it wasn't because the Lord was running late. It's so he would perfectly fulfill what had been spoken in his word. Even what looks like a delay for us sometimes is nothing more than the Lord working out things on his timeline. So that you and I, thousands of years later, we could go back and we could read this story and see that the Lord is true to his word. That if he speaks it, it will happen. The driving force behind the work of rebuilding the temple was the preaching of the word of God. It was the work of Haggai. It was the work of Zechariah. It was the Lord speaking through them to stir up the hearts of the people to once again reclaim the inheritance that he had given them as a nation. Here's a really famous passage from Isaiah chapter 55 that, that many of us quote many times uh, that you've, you've probably heard very frequently. And it tells us that as the rain falls from the sky and saturates the ground and brings forth vegetation and life, the Lord says, my word will not not return to me void. He says, it will always accomplish the purpose for which it sets forth. And so we asked the question this morning, what is the purpose that the word of the Lord is set to accomplish? He says it will always accomplish its purpose. So what is the purpose that it drives to accomplish? Understand the word of the Lord is always powerful. It's always effective. It's always doing what it's supposed to be doing. And every time we open up the word of God, every time we listen to the preaching of the word and the teaching of the word, every time we hear the message of the gospel, one of two things is happening in our hearts. Either we are softening towards the Lord in confession and repentance as we conform more to the image of Jesus or our hearts harden in rebellion as we conform more to the image of man. There's only two responses to the word of God. There's only two responses to the message of the gospel. Either we soften towards him in repentance or we harden against him in rebellion. And so this is the purpose that the word of the Lord will accomplish. It's ensuring that none of us will stand before him on the judgment day and say, I did not know. Paul tells us, Romans 1, that the Lord has revealed himself generally in all of creation. We see that he has also revealed himself specifically through the revelation of his word. This is a different sermon for a different day, but my theology allows me to understand a God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, which means I believe in a Lord who reveals himself uniquely in signs and wonders and visions and dreams. These have to be confirmed against the word of God, but God does not change. And we've seen Old Testament, New Testament, the Lord continues to communicate to his people. There is no one who will stand before him on the judgment day and say that they have a good excuse for why they didn't know. 
And the word will always accomplish this purpose of either bringing about our salvation or condemning us as guilty in the face of a holy God. I ask you this morning, what is your response to this word? Are you softening towards the Lord in repentance, or is your heart hardening against him in rebellion? Church, listen, this is why, as heavy as that can be, this is why this is good news for us today. I want you to think about this for just a moment. One of our greatest hindrances and barriers when it comes to evangelism and sharing the message of the gospel is the fear that we will fail. It's that we'll share the hope of Jesus, we'll share the love of Jesus with someone, we'll invite them to respond to this, and they don't, and we take it upon ourselves that we failed, we messed up, we didn't do the job. But listen, like your mail carrier, it's not their responsibility for you to respond to letters that you receive in the mail. What's their job? It's to deliver the mail. And and this is our responsibility as followers of Jesus. Our success is, is not wrapped up in how many people we do or do not lead to faith in Jesus Christ. We are simply called to be stewards of this message, to be faithful mail carriers. It's just our job to get the message there. And we can trust as we get the message there, it will always accomplish its purpose. Some of your translations, as you read Isaiah 55, uh, it, it will, instead of using the word accomplish, will actually use the word prosper. We can trust that our work will always prosper if we are committed to the preaching of the word because the word of God does not fail. You share the gospel with a loved one, with a friend, with a family member, and they do not respond. You have not failed. You have accomplished the purpose of the word in faithfully presenting it, and we trust that the Lord will do his work. I'll give you a a real-time example. So this is last Sunday morning. Throughout the month of January, the Lord just pressed on our heart to, at the end of every one of our services, give an opportunity for everyone gathered to publicly respond to the gospel. And so we have two different services every Sunday. This has been the case the last two weeks. Is in one service, uh, we'll have no one who responds. And then in the other service, have multiple people who respond. So it's like, what happened? I mean, did, did I, I preached the same message twice. Like, there's little nuances that'll change from here, you know, till 1045. But it was the same. Like, did, did I not preach it well enough to one group or to another? No. I, I think it was, it was the exact same. Preach the same message both. And this is what we do. When there's a service where some respond, we praise God because the word has accomplished its purpose. And when there's services where people do respond to the gospel, praise God because the work has accomplished its purpose. Whether it's in raising hearts to new life or growing us to greater conformity to Jesus Christ or using the word of the Lord to do what it's intended to do, which is to make sure none stand before the Lord saying, I didn't know. We can trust if we open the Bible and preach the gospel, the word will always accomplish its purpose. He will prosper the efforts of those who are committed to his word. Now, let's close out this passage from Ezra 6, verses 19 through 23. It says, On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. And for the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together, all of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests, and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated themselves from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. For the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. When the eyes of God are on us, we see fifth and finally this morning that he purifies our sins. The Lord made every provision. They gather together and they celebrate the Passover. This commemorated the time when they had been in the bondage of slavery in Egypt. And the final plague, the angel of death, passed over the land of Egypt. And it was uh, the people of God who had taken the blood of the lamb to cover the doorpost of their homes so that all who were covered by the blood of the lamb, the angel of death, would pass them by. 
The Lord made provision so that they could be saved from the destruction that was coming. So they celebrate the Passover. They make offerings. They celebrate feasts. And the response that we see in verse 22 is a response of joy. It wasn't just the exiled peoples returning. It was the neighbors who had lived there. Many of them are now separating themselves from the uncleanness of the pagan practices to be reunited to true worship of God. And so this was an occasion of joy and celebration. And listen, in the exact same way that the Lord made provision for the purification of their sins, he's made provision for the purification of our sins. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be the perfect and final sacrificial lamb for the sins of people so that all who were covered by the blood of Jesus can be purified from their sins. Listen, this is what happened at the cross. This is what happened at the death of Jesus As Jesus stood on the cross, as he became our sin, the one who knew no sin, the Father turned his eyes away. Some of the most haunting passages of Scripture is Jesus is alone, hanging on the cross. He cries out to heaven, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Father turns his eyes away from the Son. And because the Father turned his eyes away from the Son, you and I can turn our eyes to the Son and then the eyes of the Father turn to us. We get to live in the confidence that he has made purification for any and every sin that we have ever committed, church, past, present, and future. It was paid for at the cross. We have the confidence of knowing that this purification has been made available to us. And so what what do we do with this this morning? What what do we do with with this this morning? The people of God, that they had been given a commission, they had been given a direction, they had been given a mission, a divine one, by Almighty God, they even had the protection of the government to carry it out, but the moment they faced opposition, they reverted to pursuing their own comfort. Just going to build my house, just going to build my family, just going to make sure we got food, just going to make sure we got drink, just going to make sure we got clothing, that's going to be fine, and we're going to sit back and feel good about building ourselves up while the house of the Lord lies in ruins. And again, I, I fear many of us have taken on the same mentality. We see the opposition and the hostility to the message of the gospel in our culture today, and right now many of us are choosing our comfort over our commission. And I believe that Almighty God once again speaks to his people in 21st century America to say, consider your ways. Consider your ways. Church, we cannot sit back in safety and comfort when two billion people globally have never even heard the name of Jesus Christ, it's going to take more than just one in our congregation. When 100,000 people in Beaufort County, South Carolina, where we live today, right here smack dab in the buckle of the Bible Belt, over 100,000 people do not profess faith in Jesus Christ. It's going to take a lot more than me. It's going to take a lot more than our elder team. It's going to take a lot more than our staff. It's going to take a lot more than every church doing its very best in this area to make the name of Jesus Christ known and cause it to be remembered in all generations. It's going to take more than us. You know, it was uh, back in 1957, A.W. Tozer made a very powerful statement. He said, the average church has so established itself organizationally and financially that God is simply not necessary to it. So entrenched is its authority and so stable are the religious habits of its members that God could withdraw himself completely from it as he once withdrew the Shekinah glory from the temple and it could run for years on its own momentum. Church, we we are in a unique moment in history and man, I just feel that so many of us are missing it. 
This is a unique moment in our nation. This is a unique moment for the church. We're facing some things and experiencing some things right now that followers of Jesus in our context have never had to experience. And again, I believe today the Lord calls us once again to consider our ways, to think about our involvement. Are we going to be people who play it safe while the mission of God remains incomplete and the church of Jesus Christ lies in ruins? I don't know about you, but if the Lord tarries in his coming and the next chapters of church history are written, I pray that it could be said of the people of Cross Community Church in Beaufort, South Carolina, that it could be said of us that the eyes of their God were on them, that they did not sit in comfort that they did not wait for the permission of man to carry out the mission of God, that they trusted the Lord to make every provision and to protect them, and that they preached boldly the message of the gospel, that we could be purified of all of our sins. And so listen, this morning for one simple application question and response, and I hope you talk about this a lot in your groups today, I want to give us one simple response question to reflect on today, and it's this. If the eye of God is on us, then what in the world are we waiting for? What are we waiting for? I fear many of us today are waiting because we're in fear. We are waiting for the permission of man to carry out the mission of God. We don't believe that the Lord will provide if we step out in faith and go where he's called us to do. For some of us, it is a lack of faith. It's a lack of trust that the Lord will be true to his word, that he really will go with us as he said that he'll go with us. But many of us, I fear today, what's holding us back is our failure. We've tried this before. We've tried to share the gospel before. We've tried to be wholeheartedly committed to the church before. Or maybe you're not a follower of Jesus. You don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus. You're still wrestling with this today. And you just think, man, I've got too much sin, too much junk, too much baggage in my life. And the confidence that we have of knowing Jesus is that the eye of the Father has turned to us, turned away from the Son to turn to us so that we could turn to the Son and have the Father's eyes turn to those who call on him in faith. There is absolutely nothing in your life that can prevent you and hinder you from being used in the mission of God. And so in just a moment, this is what we're going to do. I'm not going to make a lot of fuss about this this morning, but we're just going to jump right into this in just a second. I'm going to pray, and then with every head up and every eye open, I'm going to ask some of you, what are you waiting for? Because I believe there's people here today who say, I'm done waiting. I'm done waiting to share the gospel with my friends. I'm done waiting to share the gospel with my neighbors. I am done waiting for the permission of man to carry out the mission of God. I'm done sitting paralyzed by fear, trusting that the, not trusting the Lord to provide, not trusting me to protect, not trusting him to protect me from what I face. I am done waiting in fear, not believing that the Lord can truly purify me of my sins, and I want to be set free of my sins to faithfully follow Jesus Christ. Church, I ask you this morning, what are you waiting for? What are we waiting for? My prayer this morning is that the Lord would stir up our hearts once again to reclaim the work that he's called us to do. So I just want you to bow your heads with me here for just a moment. I want to read these words from Numbers chapter 6, this blessing, and we're going to sing it over one another here in just a moment as well. Through faith in Jesus Christ, the eyes of God turn to us. And if the eyes of God are on us, it means we have his permission. It means we have his protection. It means we have his provision. It means we have purification for sin. All of these things are ours through faith in Jesus. So what are you waiting for today? If you are in Christ, these words that were once spoken over the nation of Israel can be spoken over you today as well. And so it's my prayer this morning that the Lord will bless you and keep you. The Lord will shine his face on you and be gracious to you that the Lord will turn his face upon you and give you peace. So Father, I pray for every person who's sitting in here this morning who's wrestling 
with something, Lord, who's paralyzed by fear, who is eager to be used as an instrument in your hands for your glory, Father, who's struggling to believe that they cannot be saved and rescued and purified from their sins. I ask now, Lord, that you would bind the enemy away from them, that you would silence his voice in their lives. And in the presence of brothers and sisters here, not just before our eyes, but before your eyes, they would be willing to say, I'm finished waiting. And proclaim to you and to us the work that you're doing now in their hearts and their lives as we celebrate along with them.